This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Today's episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank believes that hard work works, and for everyone working toward a goal, U.S. Bank is here to help. And if you would, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. We have coming up Mark Mills, who's going to give you good news about seemingly frightening things like robotics and artificial intelligence. And if you're an investor, you're going to get some great ideas about how you can make investments in the future. But first, what's ahead for the week? Well, June 18th, June 19th, the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee is going to be meeting, and everyone's going to wonder, are they going to cut interest rates? They'll make that decision on Wednesday, June 19th. In the meantime, a lot of speculation. I think they will hold off, but make it very clear that if the economy looks like it's going to be truly weak and the second quarter does not look that good, they'll do it probably in July or August. Another thing to watch out for, we'll get information on the weekly petroleum numbers, natural gas numbers. Petroleum, another word for oil. Oil markets have been roiling. First, inventories were way high. That knocked oil prices way down. Then trouble with Iran, oil tankers being attacked, and oil prices soar up. So these numbers will be watched with particular care, given what's happening around the world, particularly with Iran and the Middle East. Joining me now is Mark Mills, faculty fellow at Northwestern University, senior fellow at Manhattan Institute, and partner of Cottonwood Venture Partners, a man who knows about technology and so much else, as you'll soon find out. Thanks, Steve. Looking forward to this. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you have a new book out called Work in the Age of Robots. Couldn't be more timely. So we're living in an age of fear that just about everything is going to get automated. Uh, jobs will be mainly in the future so-called knowledge workers, handful of people are actually going to run things, and the rest of us are going to be uh, reduced to uh, receiving a guaranteed income. There'll be no real productive employment, nothing left for us to do. You say that's nonsense. Why? It's not just nonsense. It's uh, it's silly nonsense. It's fundamentally because robots um, are automation tools. So, so as you say the word, it's you know obvious. Everybody knows that. And we've been uh, humanity has been trying to take labor out of tasks and services for literally thousands of years. We've gotten very good at the last 200 years with the Industrial Revolution and uh, computing. So we've gotten we got very good at it. We like to do that. And we do that because uh, it drives something that economists call productivity. As you know, productivity is the magic elixir of all economies. You get productivity, you get growth, everybody gets richer, even the poor become richer by all you know, historic and global standards. So the key is, for the future, how do we get more productivity? The answer is more robots in this case. And if we look back over history, the last 150 years of good data on our economy, we've, we've improved labor productivity, automation, virtual robots, astoundingly. I mean, the technologies that have improved service and, and manufacturing productivity are incredible over the last 150 years, and yet, on average, over those 150 years, 95% of people in any given year uh, have found jobs and continue to find jobs. The only time we've had high unemployment is not from automation, it's from uh, misguided government 
policies. Calling robots labor-saving devices, that takes out some of the fear, and perhaps, too, uh, calling them uh, brain-saving devices. So uh, we don't have to physically do calculations. They can do it much quicker than we can. There used to be rooms full of men did what we called in the old days ciphering, you know, calculating, to your point, accountants and uh, doing arithmetic by hand. All those jobs are gone, right? just gone. And no one is lamenting that. There also used to be rooms full of women, and almost always uh, in recent history were women. They originally were men as typists, right? All those jobs went away from computers with the word processor. In fact, an interesting little factoid is that about 60% of the jobs that existed in the 1960s are jobs that don't exist today, yet we're at full employment. I mean, new jobs come along, obviously. The whole point is that uh, technology creates new kinds of work. Some of the new work is knowledge work. Some of it's not. I mean, or put, or put it simplistically, somebody has to build and maintain the robots, if you like. I mean, they're not, not built and maintained purely by coders. In fact, most coders I know couldn't build a robot if their life depended on it. So uh, go, go through the rough cycles of technology. You, know, you talk about 20-year cycles, 40-year cycles. Yeah, this is, a, this is an interesting uh, discovery, I guess you could say. I mean, you know that people are saying that the pace of change is accelerating. And it's a very common statement. I'm not so sure that's true. In fact, I think history shows that it really isn't true. The kinds of fundamental transformational technologies that change the world, the car, the computer, electricity, when you go from the first idea to the first commercial product, and you look back over history, including recent history, including the internet, the time from the first idea to the first commercial products, almost always close to 20 years. And then for the commercial product, that is the realization of the idea as something that's viable to sell or to a lot of people, from that to becoming a significant share of commerce or the economy is another 20 years on average. That seems like a long time uh, given what people, well, look, uh, you know, how fast apps can be added to your phone or how fast new video games can emerge. But keep in mind that all the examples that people throw out tend to be, I won't say trivial, but tend to be like that. They they're not the computer or a robot or a car. And uh, even though there will be disruptions, uh, draftsmen you mentioned in the book uh, doing uh, by hand what is uh, now done automatically in architecture, you had uh, riots in England, the Luddite riots, the swing riots, riots against uh, farm machinery. And even today, New York City reacting to Uber and to Lyft, trying to crush that. Yep. So uh, there, there will be dislocations as these things come along. I think the social and moral obligation we have as a society is to think about how to manage those transitions for the minority. But the minority are important. In fact, a, a minority in any issue, if it uh, is, can animate politics and change policies. So I, I frankly worry that we're not managing that well. I'm not a Pollyanna, as you know. I'm not, I don't think it's a smooth ride through these transitions. I think there are bumps, and the bumps can be serious. Now, you say uh, part of the uh, challenge today and part of the source of anxiety is that uh, it's uh, so-called white-collar workers who are being affected by this automation in a way that really hadn't happened before. Well, that's, that's my, uh, both an observation and my, and my cynical view that the anxiety over automation coming from the chattering classes in the, in the media is because it's their jobs that are being uh, 
first taken by knowledge automation. As we all know, and you, you know from your own business, the nature of news, of, of publishing, it's really changed. And it has reduced the amount of uh, labor required in the workforce to publish things. That That's frightening. We have a shortage of people with skilled trades in America. Uh, the number is enormous. There's probably on the order of 2 million jobs open that for which there aren't skilled trades available. Yet we have a surplus of people who have, uh, quote, knowledge skills. And there we see that in the unemployment of journalists or the unemployment in the general sort of, uh, you know, we'll call them knowledge class workers. So the asymmetry is very clear. Why is there that asymmetry? Aren't markets supposed to... Uh make that uh, reduce that kind of asymmetry? You go where well, the opportunities are? Yeah, I think you, you, you and I... In really... the old days, you'd go out west if you couldn't get a job in the east. Today, uh, you just uh, change your skill. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, so I, I think I think the markets will start to sell. Let's use an example that's been put in the news a lot, that robots will drive trucks any day now, right? That's the that's what we're being told. Well, robots driving trucks, you know, automated trucks, it turns out that's a much harder problem than the popular writing. And what we have going on now is a huge shortage of truck drivers. Um, well, you know, I think the answer is obvious in a market. They're going to end up paying them more. If you start paying people a lot of money to drive long-haul trucks, I think you'll find people deciding not to take um, a non-valuable uh, three-year degree that they take six years to get and a lot of debt. <laughs> they might, well, those, well, those students might decide, you know, driving a truck's not so bad for five or ten years. Right. Now, you discuss some uh, myths in your book. Uh, one of them is that manufacturing is going to go the way of uh, farming, of agriculture, sort of wither away, it will be there, but it'll be a small part of the economy. You say just the opposite, that uh, there's only so much food we can eat, but in manufacturing, our needs are infinite. We've increased the consumption of manufactured industrial stuff by 400% more then we have agricultural things over the last 60 years in America. And that's what's going to happen around the world. Somebody's going to make all that stuff. The only question on the table is who will make it? Will we continue to be a manufacturing powerhouse or not? That's a policy question. It's not a fundamental demand question. Well, you make the point that uh, manufacturing did decline in the U.S., but it's, you say it's not so much from uh, competition from China but self-inflicted wounds. Give us exactly. the numbers you cite. For example, between 2006 and 2016, the number of regulators of manufacturing doubled to three, more than 300,000. Walk us through that, this, this massive regulation of an industry, broadly speaking, that has been fairly safe. Yeah, this is, you know, this is, you have to ask, exactly, you have to ask yourself this question, that if we, we double the number of people regulating our economy over a period of just under a decade, uh, the, the 2006 to 16 time period, and we doubled the budget uh, roughly uh, to regulate industries. And most of what we regulate is the industrial sector. We don't, most of the, uh, if you look at the budgets and the staffing, most of it's focused on, on industry, not on services. That's the dominant uh, target of regulation. The, we, we in 2006, the United States wasn't in imminent danger of collapsing under pollution or dangers and accidents and risks from industry. I mean, what merited a doubling of the regulatory oversight of our industrial sector in that, that uh, less than 10-year period? I mean, what, what crisis was in place in 2006? Come on, there was nothing. So we have, 
we've burdened our, our sector. And these people have nothing to do except add sand to the gears of the works to slow the economy down. Regulation, by definition, slows us down. What are some of the other agencies that are involved in this uh, self-inflicted burden on manufacturing? Well, we have we have uh, we have a whole cornucopia of agencies in, in Washington now. It's not EPA is the big Kahuna, of course, because it promulgates the most regulations. OSHA promulgate, promulgates regulations that uh, some of them are very important. I mean, if you talk to any manufacturer, they'll tell you they like certain kinds of safety regulations. It, it levels the playing field. They want a safe workplace, but they go overboard. You have regulations that come out of uh, the Department of Interior. A good example there, let's use oil and gas again. Uh, if you wanted to get permission to drill uh, or dig a mine or drill, put a road in a Bureau of Land Management land, and remember the government controls a huge swath of America's land, especially uh, west of the Mississippi, uh, it normally would have taken something on the order of uh, 80 to 100 days to get permission to do it, to drill. It's not unreasonable to get permission. Uh, then during that uh, period we're talking about, 2006 to 16, not only were there more people focused on figuring out whether you should be allowed that permission, but the amount of time it took to get the permission jumped to an average of four to 500 days. So if you're a business and you have to wait you know, over a year to figure out if you have permission to even operate, you just don't bother. The most promising part of our regulatory space that's getting improved the fastest, by the way, is one you and I have talked about, which is at FDA. A lot of the talented civil service staff at FDA fully understand the need to streamline regulations at FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, to allow innovation to flourish and to, to let new technologies and, and new uh, therapies emerge. They're, they really are uh, making progress. That progress, you could argue, could have happened in the last administration or the one before. It didn't. So at least it's starting there now. That's one area where there's a very bright light. Now, uh, one of the points you make, too, is that uh, we hear a lot about STEM jobs. And indeed, as you point out, in the last half century or so, uh, they've increased from uh, 1 million to 8 million jobs. Uh, this is science, technology, mathematics, and uh, engineering. Good stuff. But you point out that uh, there are several million who can't get a job in the STEM area. Yeah, it's ironic. We actually produce more STEM graduates than there are STEM jobs. I, I'm a huge fan of people being STEM literate, but the idea that, that every student, every parent should be directing their, their, their son or daughter to become an engineer or a coder or to go into STEM is, is not only dangerous and, and silly, it's just not it's not valid way to think about the future. My advice to a lot of people and to educators is what we should be focused on is what's considered a classic liberal arts education. And I mean in the old sense of the word. You learn to read, write, reason, I mean, whether it's logic or literature. These are, these are skills that most employers want. And in fact, Google did a survey looking at their, all their employees, and they have lots of employees now, to try to figure out which employees advanced the most and were most productive for them. And they did not find it correlated with whether or not they had a STEM degree. They found that it's most strongly correlated with whether they had all these, quote, soft skills that come from both good training, uh, good upbringing, and liberal arts educations. Now, uh, one little side thing on jobs you uh, pointed out is the when the farm workers left the farms, uh, they didn't necessarily go to Henry Ford's moving assembly lines. Uh, they got regular jobs in service industries. Exactly. In fact, you know, here's... I'm a huge uh, 
bull for manufacturing, as you know, I think there's a lot more manufacturing growth, a lot more manufacturing opportunities, not just for the world, but particular for America. But I, you know, what, is, what are, there's nothing wrong with service jobs. The challenge with service jobs uh, is always in, uh, do we pay them enough? And we have a long uh, data history to show that manufacturing jobs, we typically pay them more on average or higher paid jobs. Uh, but that, I don't think that's a permanent situation. Let's go back to the trucks and your your, your point about market forces. I mean, at some point, uh, if we have a shortage of people who are really good at the service jobs, the market will begin to pay more, higher salaries for those jobs. Uh, the whole entertainment industry, which is a multi-trillion dollar global industry, is fundamentally a service business. Uh, some parts of it uh, are paid rather well these days. Some don't. That's how markets sort of sorted out to what I said earlier. We were a service-dominated economy in 1800. This is, this is not new to be service-dominated. The, the real challenge is uh, what what kind of jobs are they and can and, and can businesses and do businesses need to pay more for it? And ultimately, is the skill level requires for the services, and we're not talking about STEM education, which is almost skill level, then the salaries go up. And that's we already see evidence of that happening, as you know, in our current economy. Walk us through cyber, cyber-physical, all these kinds of... Uh robots out there. Yeah, what I mean, what does cyber physical mean that to most people if you if as soon as you say the word is it's 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 evocative. You know, cyberspace is the internet. It's the data and the bits and physical by definition means the stuff that that acts on us. A car is a physical thing. The uh, radio is the cyber thing, right? Connects to say Sirius satellite and uses radio waves to give you entertainment. When you bolt them together, when you use the radio to control the car or the aircraft, right? The drone and airplanes do have autopilot. That's called a cyber physical system. It's the merging of the two the two domains. Or the, the da Vinci operating machines hospitals have now. Exactly. So the it's a the da Vinci robot that helps surgeons do precision surgery. doesn't do it by itself. The surgeons control the machine. So that's a true cobot. The robot can move more precisely often if it's designed properly than the human can. Uh, if you want to control that robot, you're going to use virtual reality kind of headset. You have um, these so-called gloves. They'll become haptic gloves. Haptic means that you can actually feel what the robot feels. But think, think about, to your point, Steve, of, the ro- of robots really being in two domains. The, the truly vir- virtual, like Siri and Alexa, those are those are really robots. It's artificial intelligence. It recognizes your voice and your question. I still think we're uh, roughly a decade away from having general purpose, useful artificial intelligence, computers that we can talk to in natural language, uh, whether it's through our phone or through a watch, that can answer questions easily and you can say things like, you know, I would, I'm thinking about going to uh, Europe next week. Uh, could you see what's available for me? And the machine will know what your preferences are, give you an intelligent answer relatively quickly. We're, we're not even close to that. So there's a world of difference between a robot that can do, as you point out, repetitive things and ones that uh, you might say are not repetitive. <laughs> exactly. We haven't got to AI in the sense that it's being hyped yet. It's coming, though. And to my point is I think where it will come first and make the most difference is a virtual cobot in the service industries, which will drive productivity. And the most important service industry to drive productivity in is, you know, drumroll, healthcare. But no productivity gain in healthcare for 25 years. It's terrible. Uh, it's 18% of our economy, and uh, you make the point that uh, that is uh, ripe, ripe for this kind of a breakthrough. One, what is holding it back, and why do you think now uh, we might get that breakthrough? 
the next generation of technologies, more da Vinci robots helping in surgery and therapeutics, that's clearly coming. What's holding it back? Well, you know, we know the answer. It's 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 the famous Ronald Reagan line. <laughs> the government here is definitely a case where the government is not your friend. Uh, this is this is it's regulations stuck in the 19th century practically. You know, regulations lock in all technologies. We need to we need to unleash competition in this market. Quickly deal with us uh, some of the you mentioned in your book uh, new types of exotic materials that are coming down the road, or here with us already. Uh, the advent of new classes of materials, you know, plastics in that case, pharmaceuticals, just profoundly changed the world. We're we're on the cusp of a true materials revolution. A good example is literally the invisibility shield. I mean, it's an idea in science fiction. It seems silly, but in fact, uh, it is now possible to build invisibility shields. In other words, materials that have uh, what's called an index of refraction, such that it looks like light just goes around them instead of through them. Uh, if I think about the new classes of materials that are, are biocompatible. I can now talk in terms of making computers that I can consume, I can digest. I can literally put a, a smart computer sensor in a vitamin pill and eat that every day to carry vital information about my health to my supercomputer in my pocket. How will that be possible? It's because of new classes of materials. We, we can think in terms of making materials that will allow you to make a screens instead of these hard screens that we all carry in our pockets and look at that are uh, pliable, flexible, and conformable. What does that mean? It means I can literally wallpaper uh, inside of a room with what will become a computer screen or TV screen. It's already happening in a couple of aircraft where I can eliminate windows entirely and create virtual windows. The benefit of the virtual window is obvious. It's actually stronger. The aircraft's weakest point is where the windows are. It makes the aircraft uh, po possible to go faster because I eliminate the that particular part of the joint, but more importantly and more efficient, it actually it, it changes the whole character of the experience in a building. If I could do the equivalent of make the walls disappear uh, because they'll look like I'm looking outside through through pure glass. Well, this gets to, uh, the again, the uh, fear factor. Uh, disruption can be quick. You're unemployed, but progress uh, is incremental, and we don't realize how far we've come until we actually uh, look back. And as you point out, you can't foresee new types of employment or even uh, the changing nature of existing types of jobs. Yeah, and I think I think this is gets us back to something you and I have talked about many times. We do know the answer to what to do because we can look to history for that. That that there's no perfect solution, but we know that given history's evidence of these kinds of changes, that the government has never been the ideal arbiter of how to manage these transitions. It's always been managed better, not perfectly, but better by market forces. So the key here to think about what's coming is not only does, do we want to get out of the way to let these flourishings of new technologies happen, we want to create an environment in which the market is, is reacting to the change and employing people. The one, one progress we've made is the creation of what we call safety nets in society. These are good things. Um, it's a form of insurance, right, for the people who have true dis disadvantaged situations. The problem is the slippery slope. Safety nets uh, often, in fact, I guess you could argue every time <laughs> historically, get you know co-opted and expanded to become general purpose tools as opposed to safety nets. 
And uh, as you've also pointed out, not in the book, but uh, elsewhere, uh, Steve Jobs pointed out, uh, data is oil for the new age. And we're using it better than anyone else. It's a great phrase, you know, data is the new oil. Uh, people misunderstand what it means, but it means what we've been talking about. It's oil propelled the 20th century without question. There'd be no airplanes and cars, but for oil. So you needed all the collateral inventions. That's what's happening in the 21st century. Data is the new oil. We're going to have lots of collateral inventions. It's going to propel growth that I think uh, that, you know, when Trump was talked about, we can have high growth again, but yet the economists say two to two and a half percent GDP is normal. As you and I have talked about elsewhere, what the heck do they know it's, quote, normal for growth? What's, what's, not, what's normal is what innovators and entrepreneurs and technology allows. I think it's unequivocally the case that normal could be 4 to 5% growth for America again for a long time. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Steve. And now my read of the week. It's an article from City Journal. You can find it on city-journal.org by Stephen Malanga. The title is Marijuana's Black Market 2.0. Contrary to advocates' promises, legalizing pot has spurred new illegal enterprises. How's that for counterintuitive? He makes the point. States that have legalized pot have some of the most thriving black markets. This is an article you'll want to read. Anytime somebody comes up with a solution that seems to solve one problem, by golly, others may arise. We're not in a perfect world. Good article. Very, very humbling reminder. No perfect solutions. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.